You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. When I think about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, and as we just sang, the only proper response is to praise and to worship Him. And let me ask a question today. As you think about the life and the ministry of Jesus, what are some words that come to mind to describe our Savior and Lord? What are some of the the words and the vocabulary that we would use to, to praise and to commend and to worship His name? Well, I'll let that question hang in the air for a moment. I want to share some musings that I had recently uh, this past week as I was getting ready for work one morning and I was in my bathroom and just getting ready to go on with the day. I oftentimes have these thoughts that will run through my head. Maybe you're very similar and some of them are good and some of them are not and some of them are weird. And, uh, and this one was just odd because I don't know if I'd seen something on Facebook or if I'd, what the case may be, but uh, I thought, man, when I die... I hope that people will actually be sad and cry at my funeral. And, and, and so and maybe it was like, you know, sometimes we see stuff, and especially the Christian world, about, you know, everybody's like, oh, it's a celebration. And I'm like, look, we don't mourn like those who mourn to have no hope, but we do mourn. So before y'all start celebrating that I've gone to my home going, I need some tears and some crying to take place that you're going to miss me and be sad. Like, let's be human. Okay, uh, anyway, and then I also thought, well, I wonder what will be said. Like, what are the words that people would use to describe me and my life and, and ministry? Which takes me back to my first question. When you consider Jesus Christ, what are some descriptive words that come to mind? Some things that we praise him for, he's praiseworthy for. Although they could be endless, two stand out for me today in relationship to this morning's message, and they are miraculous and humble miraculous and humble. I believe that describes Jesus perfectly. And usually those two in our world don't go hand in hand, particularly when it comes to ministry, right? That if somebody is miraculous and and powerful and and all of those things, there usually is a, a concurring sense of humility about that person. Now that's not a universal statement, but a cautionary reality that one, Jesus never fell into. He was always miraculous, supernatural, powerful, and at the same time, utterly, completely, wholly humble. Miraculous and humble. This is the belief that we're going to affirm today and that we do affirm as we continue in our series entitled The Apostles' Creed. I'm going to pick up where I left off last week. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, and then what we're going to look at today, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Nothing says miraculous and humble like the conception and birth of Jesus Christ. Nothing says supernatural and humble like the incarnation. And I want to expound on why this is an essential and glorious belief for Christians in our Christian faith. And then I want to talk about what it means for us today. Why is it relevant that we would believe in what God did through the incarnation so that we can live for him today? Because it is important. And it has an impact and it has an effect. 
we have to affirm the virgin birth. That's what the Apostles' Creed does, right? It affirms beliefs that we have as Christians. It gives a summary of our faith in like a little bit of a, a, just a, a little statement, a creed, if you will. It summarizes what we believe so that you can have a, a ready definition, if you will, a ready explanation for your faith in Jesus Christ. And as it does that, it, it is giving us the ability to stand firm and to know why we believe what we believe. So this is why this is important. It is the foundation of many other critical doctrines that we believe as Christians. Because without the virgin birth, there is no gospel. This is why this is so important. Christ is not God if there is no virgin birth. If Christ was not conceived by the Holy Spirit, then he would have had to have a human father. Consequently, he would not have been divine. Without the virgin birth, there's no provision for salvation. Jesus could not reverse the curse of sin and have the ability to save sinners without the virgin birth. If we don't believe in this, we also deny the truthfulness of Scripture, the humanity of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ at the same time, and the nature of grace. Without the virgin birth, actually our whole faith begins to fall apart. Then in order to strengthen our belief and why we believe this, first of all, we look to Scripture. We look to the testimony of Scripture. We look to the testimony of the church as it has been going on since it was established in the book of Acts. We look first to the testimony of Scripture, which unapologetically presents the birth of Jesus as a miraculous, supernatural intervention by God into humanity. So let's read a portion of that gospel account. I'm going to turn to the book of Luke, chapter 1. We often know this or think of this as, some, as the Christmas narrative, but today we're going to celebrate Christmas in May. So, Luke chapter 1, verse 30 through 38. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, both Matthew and Luke unashamedly support the virginal conception of Jesus. Luke is so much, uh, doing so much so that he describes Mary as a virgin three different times, not just to be repetitive, but to make sure that he's being repetitive so that we know that he didn't make a mistake when he said it. I'm gonna say it three different times. This is who she was. This is what happened. Do not miss this. 
the testimony of the Gospels, the Bible affirm both the virginity of Mary and the miraculous conception by the Holy Spirit. Again, the reason that this is important, the reason this is imperative for our faith is because in order for the death of Christ to be able to fully atone for sin, Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man. Therefore, he was born of the Holy Spirit through the Virgin Mary. Now, because of that, Jesus offers salvation to the world as the perfect, once and for all, sinless sacrifice on behalf of sinners like me and like you. This is the reality of what we believe. Now, what we see in this miraculous event in history and this is important for us, like, well, that's great. And oftentimes we could say a creed or we could say, well, do you believe in the virgin birth? Here's what I want you to say, absolutely I do. You never, never should I be, well, I don't know if it's that important. It is absolutely imperative because Jesus is not who he says he is if this did not happen the way he said that it happened. If it's not the way the scripture says, then we serve someone other than the God of the Bible, the, the Christ, the Son. And what I want us to see also why it's so important that we believe this is it shows us how much God loves you and I, that he is after the hearts of people, that he did not leave us to our own devices, that he did not leave us on our own, that he did not leave us by ourselves. So much so, he loves us so much, the word of God says that he took on human flesh to initiate a relationship with us. He did not wait for us to come to him. He did not wait for us to figure it out because we never could. He initiated, and this is important too, so that we can know and that we can believe the virgin birth affirms God is an initiating God. He started, and whatever he started, it, the Bible says he will complete it. And this is important for us because we live in a world where we're always waiting, like, who's going to initiate this? Who's going to start this? Who's going to make the first move? Who's going to make the first phone call? I remember back in the day, it was like, you know, as a kid, we had the phones that had a, were attached to walls, right? Y'all know nothing of this trial and tribulation. Like that long cord, and then you'd get that extra long cord so you could actually go all the way into another room with the cord and shut the door, Right? Who's going to initiate the call in seventh grade? God initiates the call. He's initiated the call for us. The birth of Christ emphasizes the need for God to do this. His supernatural intervention into history, and it displays God's loving initiative with us. That we can be confident. Why? We can be confident in our salvation because of this. Because we couldn't and didn't save ourselves. God did. He's the initiator. He's the mediator. He's the consecrator. He's the perfecter. He's the finisher of our faith. He is all of those things. And that belief should change our life to know God wants to be with us. He cared so intimately about you and I that he sent his son to be flesh and blood for our sake so that he could truly empathize with us. That he came to dwell among us so that he could now dwell within us. God, Emmanuel. God with us so that he could be God in us. He miraculously and humbly accomplished what was needed to secure our salvation and our eternity with him. And it started at that moment what we affirm through the virgin birth. And God did this for us. First, I want to expound on Christ's humility because, yes, it was miraculous. 
and it was humble at the same time. And I want to expound on that humility. Don't lose the wonder of this truth. Don't lose the awesomeness and the awe of just knowing that God in, came to us in the flesh, that, 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 that he did this. This is just mind-boggling that we would worship the God of the universe this way. As the fourth century church father and theologian Athanasius said, Christ stooped to our level in his love for us. Don't miss that. He stooped to our level, again, not because of his frustration, but because of his great love for us. It's also known as God condescending, if you will, coming down to our level, voluntarily putting aside his superiority and making himself equal with us in order to walk with us and to see us, for us to see him, in order to commune with us. And with this in mind, there's something even greater than that. As I said a moment ago, this just blows my mind that part of me would just have a hard time believing that the God of the universe humbled himself and he did it by taking on total humanity in its weakest form, a baby, a naked, vulnerable, crying, helpless, little baby. Like, that is just nuts. But it's true. It's what God did. He came into this earth naked and vulnerable so that we could flourish. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 if you have a Bible, you could turn there. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And here's where Paul begins to affirm what we've just been talking about. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But here's the thing. We don't just affirm Christ's humility through the incarnation when we say that we believe in the virgin birth. We also affirm something else amazing as a result, which is found in this text. As those who are to be like Christ, as those who received him as Savior and Lord, if that's a place where you have come in your faith, those who are to be like Christ in every way, then we believe we are his disciples that follow in his footsteps, that he is both Savior and Lord, as we talked about last week. And in order to do that, for him to be Savior and Lord, we must walk in humility as Christ walked in humility. So watch this, whenever we affirm the true identity, the character, the purpose, the mission, and the actions of Jesus, we are also simultaneously affirming something that has to be true about our own lives. We're not just affirming this is about who Jesus is. Oh, he was humble and he was lowly at heart. No, at the same time as his sons and as his daughters, those who have been redeemed and bought by the precious blood of Christ, we are also affirming that as his sons and daughters, ambassadors of Christ, ministers of reconciliation, here and now, we too should have these same characteristics marking our lives. As in the case of this text in Philippians, we see the practical goal of the miraculous and humble foundation which Jesus Christ laid for us through the incarnation. 
Jesus is the cornerstone of our life. Everything that he is and everything that he does results in something happening in our lives as we submit to him. He's the foundation of our life. As a matter of fact, the Bible says to build on anything else is building on sinking sand. So we build on the cornerstone. We build on Jesus Christ. And if we look at that, then building on Jesus Christ in Philippians is verse five through eight. And the result and what it should do and the goal and the practical outworking, because there is always a practical outworking of building your life on Christ. Can we put that scripture back up there, please? Uh, the whole thing, if we have the whole thing, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. It's, all, it's on separate, there we go. Yes, two through eight. So if we, oh, I see what you're saying. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now let's go to the next one. Who, and this describes what Christ has done, so that we can do what verse three through four and five says. This is the foundation, the practical outworking. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, practical goal, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Basically, you can't say that you believe in the humility surrounding the condescension of Christ and be a prideful jerk at the same time. I mean, that's just the truth. If I believe this is who Christ is, then I believe as his disciple, this is supposed to mark my life as well. And I can't say that I believe this if it doesn't have a practical outworking. If Jesus Christ is the foundation of my life and I'm building upon the Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, then I ought to be able to, by grace, and it's actually miraculous, supernatural power of God in my life, live this way. Don't we all prefer a humble person over a prideful person? I mean, just like even in normal life. I'm not even talking about the church. Forget the church for a minute. Just think about even what you're like somebody that's received an award for a sports, you know, accomplishment. Like, oh, he's so, I love his humility. Oh, I love her humility. Oh, he's so prideful. God, he gets on my nerves. God, what a, she, what a jerk, right? No, even in the normal life, we love humility. We're drawn to humility. And that's normal. No one's drawn to pride. No one thinks that's attractive. We all say the same things to, to people that when they're prideful, it's like, shut up. That's just what you want to say. So Paul is saying, here's what he's saying, watch this. As we read this passage, we realize how impossible it is actually to live this way and how miraculous it is to walk in humility and not think of myself before I think of other people. It goes against everything in our flesh, everything in us that says, I'm looking out for numero uno, I'm looking out for myself first. Paul is saying if we would think of others before ourselves, it would go a long way in healing the disunity in our world. We don't know anything about disunity in the church, do we? Then he goes on to say, the self-centeredness that causes us to only care about our own interests, our own likes, our own dislikes, our own lives, our own rights, our own privileges, our own plans, is if that could be replaced with a mutual concern for others first, again, disunity would quickly evaporate in the air of humility. Humility is actually attractive, and God designed it that way. So what is humility? Because I'm not talking about that self-deprecating false kind of humility like, oh, shucks, yeah, nobody cares about me. No, 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 no. That's not it. That's not humility. Humility is not a lack of conviction. 
As a matter of fact, you can't seek to persuade, and that's what we're called to do, to persuade others about what we believe and what God has done in our lives. You can't hope to persuade anyone humbly if you have no convictions. You can't speak humbly with authority if you have no convictions. So I'm not talking about having no convictions. I'm talking about having very strong convictions with a deep humility. Therefore, a helpful biblical definition of humility is found in Romans 12, 3. And this is where Paul says, this is what a person should look like. Should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Watch this. In other words, humility is an accurate assessment of our self-importance in relation to God and in relation to one another. It's an accurate self-assessment. And if I could say that there's one thing that we struggle with the most, a lot of times, even in the church, yes, is having an accurate self-assessment of ourselves. Self-awareness of ourselves. And if we could have an accurate self-assessment of, of, of ourselves as compared to God and compared to one another, this is where humility comes from. So let's get an accurate self-assessment of ourselves in relationship to God. Again, we can look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, following his footsteps. When Jesus said in Matthew 20, 28, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, God in the flesh, lived a life of a servant. Didn't use his position to call in favors or to really, capital L, lord it over people. And he could have. He was the Lord of lords. Talk about lording over. He could have done it. Had every right to. He did the exact opposite instead. He met the outcast where they were. He went to the places and the spaces that no one else would ever go to. He touched the untouchables. He fed the hungry, healed the sick, gave value to the marginalized and forgotten. He forgave sins. He literally washed the feet of his disciples and ultimately died a criminal's death for all humanity. He led from underneath. Subsequently, in relation to God, since you and I are no greater than God, you and I, like our Savior Jesus, are merely servants. We're servants. Now, let's get an accurate self-assessment of ourselves in comparison to other people, because that's an accurate self-assessment in our relationship to God, that Jesus came like Philippians said didn't count equality with God something to be considered and thought about but he humbled himself came as a servant in relationship to God humility says that I'm no greater than Jesus so I'm going to be a servant in relationship to one another Paul addresses the same problem in the early church look a lot of the things that we go through probably almost everything we go through is not new it's just not and he addressed an accurate self-assessment of ourselves in relationship to one another, particularly the body of Christ. I mentioned this verse in the weekly episode of Live It, 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 9. I'm going to read it and see if you notice something odd in the wording. If you watched that video or read that email that I sent out this week, then you're going to get an A on the pop quiz after this. If not, then see if you see it now. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. What? He said, not who. He didn't say, who's Apollos? Who's Paul? They all knew who he was. They all knew who both of them were. That wasn't, he was asking a rhetorical question if he had said who. They knew who they were. He's saying, what are they? Because the arguments, the factions, the divisions were about 
who? Like Apollos, I love his preaching style. Man, I love that church. I love what he does. I love the way he does it. Man, do you know who he is? Yeah, I know who he is, but I like Paul better. I like the fact that he doesn't pull any punches. He even calls us names sometimes. Like he just gets down and dirty and just says it like it is. I really like Paul. I know who he is. But it's not about who either that Paul is saying. I don't care if everyone on the planet follows you on Instagram and knows who you are. You're not anything compared to the greatness of God. He says, we're all just servants. We don't have the power. The gospel has the power. We're not God. God's God. So no matter how big or well-known or popular or powerful or wealthy I may become in this life, it is but a footnote in the grand scheme of eternity. That doesn't mean I'm not valuable, but I shouldn't think too highly of myself. That doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose and a, a plan that's valuable for this life but it is just this moment and it's a breath and it's a blade of grass and it's a vapor and it's gone. So don't think too highly of yourself. It's not your power. It's not your ability to communicate. It's not how many people are in the church or, or watching you online. It's not how many, if you've got a blue check mark by your name on Instagram, it's not, that's, oh, that's, that's not it. And if we're all honest, those of us who are in that realm and that world, sometimes we think that's what it is and, and we're, we're going after that and we're trying to be recognized and we're trying to be liked and we're trying to be affirmed and, and we want to, man, I wish I was more popular. I wish people heard more of this. I wish people watched my sermon more. I wish people talked about this more in a better way than just a negative way. I wish, I wish, I wish. And yet all of that doesn't matter and it pales in comparison if God says, I see you and you're doing a faithful job and doing what I've called you to do. Be a servant in the house of the Lord. You can't do what God can do. We can only do what we are, and that's servants. So back to Philippians 2, 3 through 5. I know this is impossible. I know it is. This is impossible. Like, I, I'm going to be conceited. I'm going to, have, I'm going to have these things happen in my life. I'm going to think about myself first in my flesh. But what the virgin birth reminds us is God is all about pushing out the impossibilities. This is what the virgin birth literally reminds us as Mary pushed out the impossibility that God could come to earth in human form. This humility, this condescension happened through the supernatural, miraculous power of God as our humble king stepped in to earth. How in the world do we live without selfish ambition? How do we live without vain conceit? How do we truly think of others first? And the answer is found in verses five through eight. As I said a moment ago, Christ's humility, the greatest humility ever, is the foundation for this practical outworking in our lives, that we would have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. See how, much, see how each description takes him lower and lower. It's almost like nine steps of condescension if you will emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and he's saying like real man but not like real sinful man that's what he's saying he's like man but he's not like man in the fact that he's sinful so he's going to take on the likeness of men he's going to be found in human form a baby he's going to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross Lower and lower and lower. 
Lives of humbly living with care and concern for others. How do we do that? We have the mind of Christ. Remember what Jesus did when he came as a little baby. And if the greatest of all time can become the lowest of all time, then why would a vapor like my life and your life have an issue with walking in humility with one another? Practically, we do not need, listen, practically, we do not need to get the last word. Oh, but I want to. Oh, believe me, I want to, my friends. Man, I want to get the last word because I think my last word is going to be a good one. It's going to drop the mic. But you don't have to get the last word as you walk in humility. We don't need to win the argument. Oh, but I can prove it. I've got every scripture to back it up. I can theologically just blow this to smithereens. I can get on Facebook and flame them with the love of God. And oh, I want to. Because it doesn't stop everybody else from doing that. And when somebody else does that to you and all those things that creep up in me just like they do you because I'm human, I have to remind myself what Romans 12 says as well that I don't have to even be vindicated in this life. Oh, but I want to, God. I want to be vindicated. I want my name vindicated. I want the church vindicated. I want you to put this right. And Romans 12 says that's for God to judge Vengeance is the Lord's, and he does so in his time, not mine. But here's what that does for us. It frees us. It sets us free from the need to proudly demand that we be right or that our rights in this world take precedence over everything else. And the scripture tells us humility does not feel a right to be to better treatment than what Jesus got himself. And yet oftentimes, my friends, we can be in the church I'm afraid having the mindset that somehow that Jesus went through all of these things, so I never will. Now, there's things that Jesus went through that you never will. But he says, listen, if they said this about me, they'll say this about you. If they did this to me, they'll do this to you. Don't think it's strange if people speak ill of you. Don't think it's strange if this happens to you. Don't think it's strange. If they did it to me, they'll do it to you. A servant is no greater than his master, is what Jesus said. I even think of what Mary said, right? That she was like, listen, be it unto me according to your will, O Lord. I am just a lowly servant. Listen, ladies, if anybody could have had a position to where they could have bragged, I gave birth to the Son of God. I don't care what your baby can do. I got you on this one. But she said, I'm a servant, nothing more. And I'll be obedient because here's the thing, we all have said this, that the belief that we affirm, even about the virgin birth, but in the Apostles' Creed, that belief leads to actions and actions verify belief. Like faith, humility is verified and demonstrated in obedient actions to God. Like Mary, she humbly obeyed the Father. Like Jesus, he humbly, it says, obeyed the Father, humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself in obedience to God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. We certainly don't even have to deal with that. It wasn't beneath Jesus to live and to die as a man, even though he was a part of the triune God. 
So here's what that means to us. There is nothing God will ever ask you to do as a minister of reconciliation and an ambassador of the gospel that is beneath you. Nothing is too low. We're all just servants in the house of the Lord. I love what the psalmist says. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. It's just like, look, as long as I'm obeying the Father, wherever, whenever, whatever, Let me close with encouraging you on the other outworking of this, and then we'll be done. The other outworking of the Holy Spirit conceived virgin birth isn't just so that we can be reminded of the humility of Christ, the condescension of God towards us, his love for us, so that we could walk in that same humility and love, but very simply, it also reminds us what Luke 137 says is that nothing is impossible with God. If this can happen, it reminds us when we affirm this, nothing's impossible with God. Why? Well, if you believe the virgin birth, if you, then you can believe in the miraculous power of an almighty God. Try talking about this. Try explaining. Just try, go somewhere and, and say this to somebody that's not oriented necessarily to the Bible or the church and just say, say it. And sound, see how crazy it might sound. Like, I believe that there was an unwed virgin teenage girl who was overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit, thereby making her supernaturally impregnated with the Son of God, which then allowed the almighty God to come to earth in the form of a sinless baby. How foolish does that sound? But a Christian has to decide whether we believe in an almighty God who is able and has the authority and power over all creation and is able to do whatever he desires to do. We have to believe whether or not we believe it or not. We have to decide whether we believe in the Holy Spirit conception and virgin birth. And if we do, and that God exists, and the Bible is true, then miracles and the supernatural work of God are a part of this Christian life. They're a part of the deal. They're still happening today. This is how an almighty Father, creator of heaven and earth, still works. It's logical to think that a supernatural God would work supernaturally. It's his nature. So if we're honest, most objections to believing God is this supernatural, miraculous God or believing in his ability to do something miraculous are more about us than it is about God's ability. It's always more about us than it is about God's ability. Whenever I consider, when I think, well, I don't know, God, this circumstance looks a little big, this situation looks a little, like hopeless, this person in my family is never going to do this, or, or this situation is never going to change, or, or this is never going to change in our, our community, or whatever, the, look at the world around us and all the hurt and the pain, and, and I see all these things, and then, God, I don't know. Whenever I have those moments, I remind myself of the story in Mark 9, where this father had his son who was demon-possessed, and the disciples came, and they couldn't do anything about it. And the father comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, if you can, please help us. Help me, help my son. Here's Jesus' reply in verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Have you been there? I believe this virgin birth. I believe that you're the son of God. Oh, but gosh, that is, help my unbelief. I believe, God, that you can come through. I believe, God, that you're still able to, to do these. Oh, but help my unbelief. See, graciously, that's exactly what Jesus did for this father. He didn't say, well, come on, man, faith up. Pray harder. Well, 
well, go back to your, go back to your house and pray for a, a few more days and then come back. Build up your faith. Oh, he said, you know what? I'm going to meet you in your inadequate faith. And that's nothing to be ashamed about because human faith is never going to be perfect faith. There was only one who had perfect faith, and his name was Jesus. And that is not and never has been an obstacle for Almighty God to work miraculously in and through our lives. And the reason I highlight this is because if you can believe in the virgin birth, then you can believe the supernatural Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, can intervene in miraculous ways in your life still today. That he can set us free from things still today. That he can save us still today. That he can move in ways that we cannot move still today. What difficult, painful, hopeless situation are you facing right now as if it would take a miracle to change? I believe, but help my unbelief. Just as the father was unable to save his son, We are completely dependent on Jesus' miraculous supernatural power to work in our lives. To do what only he can do. If we believe in Christ's birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. If we believed in Christ unto salvation, you believed that he could save you and be your savior. If you believed that, then you've experienced the greatest miracle of all. That God would take a sinful heart and transform our lives into the righteousness of God. If you can believe that, then you can begin to trust everything that God's word says. You can take your belief mixed even with your unbelief to God and tell him that you trust him to come through in your life as he has done so many times before. Our families, our marriages, our health, our jobs, our finances, our community, our pride, our insecurities, our brokenness, our disappointment, our hurt, our division, our fears. God is bigger than all of those things and so much more because he is our miraculous, humble king. I want to read the Apostles' Creed together with you this morning as we affirm what we believe. Join with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father Almighty from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.